I first decided to go to seminary, I was surprised at the response from some people within my evangelical community. For many people, I had to explain that no, I was not going to become a Catholic priest because they didn't even have the idea of an evangelical seminary on their radar. Other people warned me about the dangers of academic theology and how it can kill your so-called faith, as though there's this strong distinction between the intellect and the faith or the theology and the practice of it. One older man who actually mentored me for a long time and who I have a lot of respect for He called it cemetery as a joke. Uh, Even though it was a joke, I think it said a lot about the general feeling from some people. No one directly opposed what I was doing, but many of them were a little bit skeptical and even more seemed concerned about this fact that my faith might die the more that I studied. Using language similar to what I've used in this show, I told them that studying theology for me didn't draw me away from a Christ-centered faith, but actually helped me hold on to it in the middle of doubts and problematic questions. So here I am, six or seven years later, a man with an MDiv and thousands of dollars in student debt, and I'm working with underprivileged children in the Middle East on a pretty slim paycheck. It's not a road that I expected by any stretch of the imagination, and Honestly, if I had continued on the road that I was on, where I was measuring my progress by degrees and viewing them as milestones to the life of a scholar or a professor or whatever I thought I wanted to be, then if I had continued that, I don't think I would have ever ended up as happy as I am right here. I don't think I would have made it very far down the road of the academic at all without having a nervous breakdown. My faith now certainly does not look the same as it did before I started seminary. For that matter, it doesn't look the same as it did before I started studying the Tao Te Ching either. I've wrestled with more questions and doubts and confusion about faith in these past few years than any other time in my life. But I don't think that seminary was the cause of that, and I'm not convinced that I would have avoided those doubts and that road of struggle by not pursuing my studies. And the same can be said for my journey with the Tao Te Ching. In fact, I actually think I might have jumped off the road of faith altogether if I didn't feel free to think deeply and to study and to think intellectually about faith, which is, again, this word that we so often define very poorly as a simple blind and unquestioning acceptance of things that we can't understand. Now, occasionally, I do wonder what all that education was for. In some ways, my seminary day days feel like part of a different life. And sure, I can point to how connections from seminary helped lead me here to where I am now, but it seems like an awful stretch sometimes to justify all of the sacrifices, the financial and the emotional sacrifices that I had to make on that journey. But honestly, this kind of question of justifying it only comes up when I'm thinking in the perspective, again, of measuring accomplishments and compartmentalizing and qualifying every part of my life into nice little chapters and stages on this journey. But as we all know, life is not that simple. In his text that's sort of a free-form text inspired by the Tao Te Ching, David Jones contrasts this idea of the educated person with the lifelong learner. And he makes it clear how important it is, for me at least, to take a more holistic view in those times when I find myself dealing with these questions of justifying what was the point of it all. 
David Jones wrote, The educated are not lifelong learners. They see education as an arrival. They mark destinations with diplomas. They separate from others by degrees. The educated are uncomfortable with ignorance. So, to pacify themselves, they label others as ignorant. So many answers, they say, and so many people who will never comprehend. Lifelong learners are continually on a quest to uncover how much they don't know. With every question they answer, they discover a thousand more questions. Driven by their curiosity, they are always excited. So many questions, they say, and so little time to explore. Every location, a potential classroom. Every person, a potential teacher. Every moment, an opportunity to learn. Recently, very recently, in fact, someone said to me that studying theology is extremely important, but sometimes it can lead to a form of sort of this modern Gnosticism. The idea that if we just dig hard enough to find the hidden answers to the big and secret questions of life, then this will naturally flow down into a vibrant spiritual life and a strong feeling of connection with God. And their point was that theology is so important, but it can become a trap to think of it as a, a sort of finding the secret answers. And I'll freely admit that I have fallen into this thinking trap so many times before, sometimes not even intentionally, or most of the time not intentionally. Some might propose, if we come back to the Tao Te Ching, that it is inclined to be a sort of Gnostic text, with all of its subtle mysteries and these opaque verses that are just begging to be decoded, to be grasped and understood. Lao Tzu's wise person or sage often sounds like the the great Gnostic um, sages and masters who were full of hidden knowledge that led to their own enlightenment. But I think that maybe it's better to describe the Tao Te Ching as an anti-Gnostic text. Lao Tzu's wisdom is the kind of wisdom that's hidden in plain sight, the kind that tends to be blocked off the more that we pursue the hidden answers to the great mysteries. I can't help but wonder, then, how this perspective plays into that faith versus intellect or head knowledge versus heart knowledge duality that so many evangelicals have been born and bred in and have taught for for years. And so this, this interaction between the Tao Te Ching and the ideas around my Christian faith is just one of the many things that has drawn me to this ancient book of Chinese wisdom and spirituality, which again did not draw me away from a Christ-centered faith, but actually helped me hold on to it. Hi, my name is Corey Farr, and this is episode 50 of A Christian Reads the Tao Te Ching. I can't believe it. 50 episodes, just about coming up on 18 months into this journey. It is wild to me. If you haven't listened before in this series, I work through the Tao Te Ching from beginning to end, and I talk about sort of chapter by chapter all of the ways in which I have uh, it has had a profound impact on my life um, with regards to my faith as a Jesus follower, but also in a more general sense as well. Uh, If you're a first-time listener, best thing to do is to go back and listen to episode one. Uh, It gives kind of an overview of the series, kind of an explanation of a lot of the concepts that I'll be working with throughout the series. 
the other option is to head over to my blog at coryfar.com. There is a link to that in the show notes. And you can read the blog series that follows the podcast, um, kind of on hiatus right now, but it does have at least the first uh, few dozen episodes. And you can read plenty of other articles that I've written about uh, faith and spirituality and Christian theology, etc. In today's episode, we're going to be looking at chapter 65. Now, I mentioned a few episodes ago that we were finally done with our series on what I called the more political chapters of the Tao Te Ching. Uh, I didn't realize that today we're going to be faced with another one that is seems at first pretty directed towards the governing officials, at least the first time we look at it. But as always, I think that whatever the Tao Te Ching says to the governors or the leaders or the rulers can usually be applied to any form of leadership from <clears throat> even the most low levels that we might think about in our lives, the most basic and sort of mundane levels of leadership. And so we're going to look at this chapter from two different angles. First, we'll talk about avoiding what Lao Tzu calls cleverness in leadership and in politics. Now, this can include things, but definitely is not limited to, uh, political machinations and subterfuge and, and lying and maneuvering ourselves into the best possible position to get what we want. And we'll wrestle at that point with the way that this text actually seems to be very decidedly anti-democratic very much opposed to giving the will of the people um, a voice in the public forum. And so we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, second, though, we're going to approach the text, uh, the second half of the text, from a pretty different angle, and we'll talk about uh, the dangers of over-education, as I kind of just hinted at in the beginning. And we'll end by going back to this, this section from David Jones that I just read, where he compares the educated people to the lifelong learners, and how he obviously has much better things to say about the lifelong learners than the educated. Just a heads up before we finally get into it, I'm going to be doing a lot of reading from other authors here today. Maybe that seems lazy at first, I don't know. But there are so many wonderful translations and just brilliant commentaries about this chapter that I almost feel like I don't have a lot to add to them at all, really. And so I'll be chiming in to try to establish a framework and then add some of my own thoughts and comments to connect them together. But honestly, I think that the real meat of today's episode is going to come from some outside voices who have given me a lot to think about uh, during this process of preparing for this. So anyway, let's uh, finally jump right in and listen to chapter 65 from Stephen Mitchell's translation. The ancient masters didn't try to educate the people, but kindly taught them to not know. When they think that they know the answers, people are difficult to guide. When they know that they don't know, people can find their own way. If you want to learn how to govern, avoid being clever or rich. The simplest pattern is the clearest. Content with an ordinary life, you can show all people the way back to their own true nature. The first few lines of this chapter are a little bit cryptic, and depending on how we take them, they could potentially have a very negative resonance, especially for modern ears. And so, to put it really bluntly, if we understand that Lao Tzu's talking to governing officials here, it seems that he's pretty firmly saying that the best thing to do is to keep the people ignorant. Uh, another translation says that the ancient masters who understood the way of Tao did not educate people, but made them forget. Smart people are difficult to guide because they think they are too clever. 
And so we usually associate governments that want to keep people ignorant with corrupt totalitarians or dictatorships who want to be able to brainwash and manipulate the minds of their people. Now, this hardly seems to be Lao Tzu's idea, if you read the text as a whole, since he is very firmly against the use of this idea of cleverness or political machinations by his uh, leaders. But still, his stance definitely is not suited to modern sensibilities. And in fact, it's, it's, I think there's no way to get around it other than it seems very anti-democratic if we take it at face value. Fortunately, Stefan Stenod gives sort of an explanation and kind of a, a take on this from a historical viewpoint that really kind of <clears throat> helps flesh it out for me at least. He wrote, It's difficult to deny that Lao Tzu, <coughs> excuse me, he wrote, It's difficult to deny that Lao Tzu also genuinely doubts educating the masses. The more people know, the more they will interfere with government. Although Lao Tzu is compassionate about the well-being of the people, he knows nothing about democracy. At the time he lived, there were experiments with it so far away from his abode that he had no way of hearing about it. Ancient Greece had no contact with China, where the idea of democracy was unthinkable. In a democracy, the people's knowledge is essential. Without it, there's just the pretense of democracy. People need to know as much as their elected leaders do, or they will be powerless against them and the brainwashing. On the other hand, in a kingdom or an empire like that of ancient China, people should be powerless, not to interfere with the ruler's plans. Then they should be kept ignorant. It's not the ideal state by far, but Lao Tzu and his contemporaries saw no alternative. As for our time, being one where democracy is somewhat established and cultured, profound virtue should be explained to people, so that it encompasses all of them. That's how a democracy can be properly governed, since everybody has a role in it. Today, Tao and its virtue need to be learned by all, or our society will surely fail. So this is another one of those times that we have to take the Tao Te Ching with a grain of salt. We have to be able to sift through the relevant and the timeless principles of spirituality that are in it, and that means being willing to discard some things that don't fit the bill. And so fortunately, this chapter is mostly full of relevant and timeless wisdom, uh, with a few exceptions like this. Um, and one of the most outstanding points here, and one of the most timeless things, is, his, is the instructions to leaders this very strong warning against the idea of cleverness. Now, it's hard to define exactly what this cleverness means, especially since it really depends on what angle we take to approaching the rest of the chapter. But if we're thinking from this political standpoint here, then it's really not too hard. Cleverness in, in, includes things like, as I said, the machinations, the backstabbing, uh, the lobbying, making and breaking alliances, all of these things are part of the dirty underbelly of politics. And really, this is nothing new, even though our rhetoric against our political opponents today tends to imply differently. We think that corruption is something new and that draining the swamp is some kind of new idea. But for all of human history, it's been that way, because really this is so tempting to us when we achieve power. We get a rush from the idea of it, and this is one reason why series like House of Cards or Game of Thrones are so wildly popular. 
Now, when I say that, it's hard to think of two shows that could be further apart in terms of the setting. Uh, House of Cards is set in modern-day Washington, D.C. Uh, Game of Thrones is set in this wild fantasy world filled with dragons and zombies and everything like that. And yet both of them have the idea of political machination or political scheming really lies at the heart of both of these shows. And that is what makes them so highly uh, entertaining and fascinating and addictive for us. Um, but this kind of behavior is incredibly destructive, and Lao Tzu knew that. And it's dangerous when we make it into a spectacle that we can enjoy um, watching for recreation. George Burke commented, There is no denying that in the intervening centuries between Lao Tzu and the present day, there has been an opening of consciousness that has certainly rendered most people more capable of understanding what is going on in the world than at his time. Nevertheless, humanity has a long way to go, and until then it is beneficial for us to seriously consider what past leaders have had to say about public life. So, if a leader tries to lead through cleverness, he is nothing but a liability. But if a leader leads not through cleverness, but through goodness, this is a blessing to all. Anyone with good sense should know this is true, but in this country we have endured the presidency of corrupt and morally vile men who, we were assured daily, were those who wanted to deny... <laughs> Sorry. We were assured daily were capable of being worthy presidents because their personal life had no effect on their political life. Those who wanted to deny decency and personal responsibility gladly took to this gospel of evil, but no one with open eyes and ears failed to see that the opposite was true. Each aspect of our life affects all the others because they are essentially one. To ascribe to the possibility, much less the desirability, of moral schizophrenia is itself insane. Yet we have seen in other leaders the value of goodness which guided their endeavors. So we can see here that Burke is commenting on this idea of cleverness and focusing in on exactly what is, I think, the heart of Lao Tzu's point here, which is that we need to have um, consistency or integrity among our leaders. It's really quite a simple idea. Uh, John Braun Jr.'s translation fleshes this out a little bit more. He says that the clever or the corrupt leaders uh, take advantage of society but the truly virtuous leaders selflessly allow for change that benefits society. This contrast between taking advantage of society or being selfless and to allow for change that is for its benefit is uh, pretty profound, and I think that Marshall Davis even puts it much more simply in his own translation. He says, When smart people rule a country, government gets very complicated. When godly leaders rule... Things are done simply and easily. The one who understands this governs well. The best ruler is ordinary and honest, the opposite of the world's way, but it is the way of heaven. Now, anyone who's done, uh, who's read any of my work uh, or listened to the episode on Christian anarchism would know that I'm not a big proponent of this idea of Christian leadership in government as this kind of concept or ideal for us. But again, we can apply this, I think, to all forms of leadership. And so there's something in here for everyone 
even if we're not running for Congress. But just like we had to do with our entire series on the political or the government chapters, let's take a stand, let's take a step now and shift away from this political hermeneutic of the chapter, and then we'll try to find a connection to our daily spiritual lives or to the life of a Taoist leader, again, more in general. And so this is actually what Derek Lynn does in his commentary, and so I really like this, and it helps set us up for the next section of the show. He wrote, Think of your life as a sovereign state, and think of yourself as the ruler. If, like many people, you run your life with cleverness and contrived craftiness, you will also make things more complex and difficult to manage. A complicated life filled with tension and stress is one where joy has been taken away by no one other than yourself. You would thus be the thief who robs your own life of happiness. So, as we take that and kind of transition into the next section, I'll read from Marshall Davis's translation again, and this time on the second half of the chapter, which we didn't hear just now. And although he Christianizes the text, and he does a little bit of paraphrasing here, he does this in order to capture another facet of chapter 65 that I think it would be easy to miss uh, on our first reading of it. And so let's hear that now. Christ did not educate people. He undid the knowledge of the learned, and he taught them to approach God in simplicity and honesty. People with the most academic degrees are the most difficult to teach because they already know the answers. When you know you don't know, only then can you learn. So even though we started with a political interpretation of the first few lines, since that seems to be implied by the context of the, chap- of the chapter, uh, many translations uh, tend to take these lines in a more generalized spiritual sense, just relating to the masters of Tao in general. For example, uh, Jafu Feng says, In the beginning, those who knew the Tao did not try to enlighten others, but they kept it hidden. He's not talking about leaders keeping people ignorant, but the the ones who understood the Tao uh, not sharing it with others. And within the context of the book, we can often understand that this means uh, this is more for the protection of the leaders, I think, than even the disciples, because uh, the idea of trying to put down and categorize and explain everything in sort of this uh, systematic way would be bad for the leader, and it's really impossible. Uh, it would it would give, give the leader sort of this ego boost and it would not actually accomplish anything because as we read in chapter one, the Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. Uh, Ron Hogan puts it a little bit differently. He says, in ancient times, leaders who were right with Tao didn't teach everybody how to become enlightened. They kept people's lives simple. And you might even argue that by keeping the lives simple, that is in fact teaching a lot about the Tao that we read about. But if we think about this, as a, and what I just said, this interpretation kind of raises a pretty obvious question. If the enlightened sage doesn't try to teach others about the Tao and doesn't try to enlighten them, then why on earth are these words being written down? Why are they being taught and spoken? And Stefan Steno really just directly addresses this question. 
He says it's strange and somewhat contradicting other messages of his book that Lao Tzu praises hiding from people even the understanding of Tao. For one thing, why then would he write a book explaining it? But knowledge of Tao is not necessarily understanding it or being able to follow it. Insufficient knowledge can even be an obstacle. People think they know, so they close their eyes and they get no closer to Tao. They settle with having a name for it. This may be the kind of knowledge that Lao Tzu wants to keep away from people. Actually, most knowledge is like that. Each phenomenon in nature is given a name, as is every plant and animal. That doesn't mean we understand them, nor does it mean that we are clear about their roles in the world. But still, those who want to appear learned make sure to memorize a lot of such names, and thereby claim to have a perfect understanding of all the things they are naming. Already in the first chapter of the Tao Te Ching, we are told that this is a mistake. Tao is not just a road you walk, and its name doesn't reveal its essence. Latsu complained in chapter 32, there are already many names. One must know when it's enough. He should have had a glimpse of our time. It would shock him. Today we have so many more names on so many more things, but we still fail to understand how they are all connected and what ultimate law they obey. We should stop the naming and start our quest for the truth behind all things. That's what Lao Tzu talks about in his book. In the absence of the truth, he prefers that people are ignorant, not caring for knowledge. We've talked before about this idea of naming things a number of times on the show. And all the way back in episode two, we looked at how the Tao, as I said, is nameless. And then early on in the show, we talked about the danger of applying too many names to things as we divide them up and try to categorize and and understand them through this idea of naming so that we can then grasp them and even, in a sense, control them. According to Stenod, though, this impulse that we have to name and to categorize and to qualify things is really what lies behind this strict warning that Lao Tzu gives against educating the people. And... For me, this helps make more sense of things. And I can say that, honestly, this tendency to name and to seek to understand is, I think, both the greatest strength and the greatest weakness of academics, and particularly the academic theology that I talked about in the very beginning. And that's where I spent a lot of my life. Um, Depending on where you're at in your spiritual journey, studying and naming things when it comes to doctrines or worldviews or God as God's self or even our relationship to God, this idea can either be a life jacket in the ocean or it can be a millstone that's tied around your neck as you float through the unpredictable tides of faith and spirituality. As we heard earlier, David Jones makes the comparison between what he calls the educated and then the lifelong learners. Uh, For most of us, we'd probably hear this and we would see them as overlapping or at least ideally overlapping and not in this kind of split duality. But Jones is trying to make a point here. Of course, he believes that the lifelong learners will become educated in a sense, but it's our posture towards the issue, the issue of this learning and this education. If we start placing our identity in the fact that we know things or we've learned things or we've gotten degrees even, instead of the fact that we are truth seekers, 
then we run the risk of getting stuck in an intellectual and a spiritual swamp. And I'm trust me, I'm speaking from experience here. And so I think that Jones's chapter is not just encouraging, but it's cautionary as well. He says, education leads to ignorance. The more you learn, the more you will discover you don't know. But the educated are not lifelong learners. They see education as an arrival. They mark destinations with diplomas. They separate from others by degrees. The educated are uncomfortable with ignorance, and so, to pacify themselves, they label others as ignorant. So many answers, they say, and so many people who will never comprehend. Lifelong learners, however, are are continually on a quest to uncover how much they don't know. With every question they answer, they discover a thousand more questions. Driven by their curiosity, they are always excited. So many questions, they say, and so little time to explore. Every location a potential classroom, every person a potential teacher, every moment an opportunity to learn. I love this distinction he makes here. The educated are saying so many answers and so many people who won't understand, whereas the lifelong learner says so many questions and so little time to explore. And I think this section makes even more sense when we consider the wisdom of unlearning that we talked about back in episode 33. Whether it's our bad habits or our first impressions of people or ideas or our personal narratives and views of our life or even our cultural and theological paradigms on a massive scale, there's really a lot that we need to unlearn as we continue our journey as lifelong learners. And so if we're focused purely on acquiring knowledge or adding knowledge in hopes of being educated, then I think we're missing at least 50% of the opportunities to experience growth in our minds and in our souls. The unlearning is just as important as the learning. Oliver Benjamin compares this process to the work of a book or a magazine editor. And I don't think it's a perfect metaphor. I think it doesn't cover all of the dimensions or the ideas that I'm trying to get at here. But I really do like his words here, and so I'll read from his commentary um, a little bit at length here, but I think it's great. He says, We all know and understand that knowledge and understanding are great things. Without knowledge, human beings would just be weak and hairless monkeys that walked funny. And yet when it comes to cooperating with others and binding ourselves together in a group, knowledge can often be one of the last things that we need. One of the biggest developments in academia over the last couple of decades has been the rise of cognitive psychology as a means to make sense of human problems. Spearheaded primarily by Princeton University professor Daniel Kahneman, this powerful... (laughs) I'm just realizing now that sounds like Kahneman. I think it's Kahneman. Uh, This is giving me a laugh. (laughs) Hopefully he's not a Kahneman, Kahneman, but... uh, I'm just going to leave this. I'm not even going to cut that because that's too funny to me. Um, As he says, though, this powerful way of identifying cognitive biases has shed impressive new light on just how uptight and unlimber most of our thinking can be. We all like to think that we're rational people who soberly consider information presented to us. But Kahneman or Kahneman's studies suggest that on the whole, we are deeply deluded most of the time. 
given how wrong most of us are prone to be about everything, all the time, and comment threads on the internet are proof of this, it stands to reason that a, pr- a little principled unknowing could go a long way. Consequently, instead of working to increase the sum total of knowledge, the sage will instead endeavor to simplify things. In many ways, this is similar to what the editor of a book or a magazine article does. He starts with a bunch of information and gradually whittles it down until only the important bits remain. The sage, then, could be seen as a sort of an executive editor of a culture. Writing teachers often counseled that editing is what separates the men from the boys. And by this they mean that anyone can gather ideas and information and knowledge and put a story together. But it is in the editing process that the narrative can be pared down to its essence and begin to make lucid and compelling sense. So... By now, you're all familiar with our old friends Go With The Flow and Be Present to what is going on in front of you as some of the overarching themes of this entire podcast. But I'm thinking here that it might be fair that sort of we can identify that another meta theme of this show is learning to unlearn, to unlearn about our cognitive and religious biases, to recognize our destructive way of thinking or ways of thinking and then to find a better sense of health and spirituality. And so maybe you're like me and you wonder how much quote-unquote progress that you've made as a result of all of this, of listening to the show or pursuing your own uh, pursuits of more holistic spirituality. But, and I struggle with, with this, but I'm not sure that we can really measure things like this with the idea of progress. And so... I guess that I would just encourage you to be encouraged and remember that, as we talked about a few weeks ago, really what the bottom line here is that the journey of a thousand miles starts right under your feet. Thanks so much for listening to this episode, episode 50. I feel like this is such a big accomplishment and it's been a journey that's been hard sometimes to keep this going, but really it's been uh, it's been awesome too. So, thank you to all of my Patreon supporters. Uh, really, I wouldn't have I wouldn't be able to keep going without you. Um, the The money and your donations certainly helps, but I also feel your support, and I feel not just because of the money, but because of the dialogue that we've had. I feel this obligation, or maybe not obligation, but this. I feel indebted to you and I feel like um, that I owe this to you in a sense, not in a negative way, but in a, in a positive way. You inspire me to keep going. Um, so if uh, you have not checked out the Patreon before, I would encourage you to do that. There is a link in the show notes. Uh, you can head on over there and sign up basically for anywhere from 2 to $15 a month. Uh, that money goes to me to help basically just to support me um, and kind of I can earn a little bit of money with the enormous amount of work that I put into this show and that's not why I do it but it does help me kind of fund myself as a working overseas as I said at the beginning of the show in the Middle East um, and uh, in exchange for that monthly donation you'll then get access to different kind of benefits so anything from our Facebook group for the for the show uh, early access to episodes uh, access to all of these scripts and you know the word-for-word transcriptions of every episode and uh, one of the most exciting, I think, is um, the the exclusive episodes. And so this show used to be weekly. Now it's bi-weekly. 
but for Patreon subscribers at the $5 a month level and up, on those off weeks, you'll then get a exclusive episode, which is um, usually me sort of kind of going off script and choosing a particular topic or passage or idea, um, certainly related to the ideas of this show, but not always directly Taoist. Um, and then I kind of process through that and bring some notes or some quotes uh, and kind of share that and think about it, thinking out loud. And so it's great for me to work through what I'm thinking and uh, I think it's hopefully thought-provoking for everyone listening in as well. Um, so that would be a great thing if you're interested. Go ahead and check that out. Um, you can also check out my blog. Again, there's a link in the show notes. Uh, the blog has been kind of uh, on hold for a while, but um, I'm actually thinking as I get closer to finishing up the Tao Te Ching that I may uh, take up blogging again more regularly. But anyway, thank you all for your support. I hope you've you've enjoyed this episode, and I look forward to seeing you again in a couple weeks. Grace and peace.